Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Our podcast series examines from a range of perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Welcome to today's podcast. We're coming from the National Problem Gambling Clinic in London, which is run by Central Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust. Now, as you probably have guessed, we're looking at the issue of gambling. Now, gambling is very much in the public eye at the moment. There's daily discussion about gambling, advertising and sponsorship in sport, concern about young people's levels of gambling, and set against kind of a picture in the UK where around 450,000 people are said to be in uh, problem gambling behaviours. However, as with all the episodes in this podcast series, we're going to look at this issue from a slightly different perspective. In this case, what we can reasonably expect from commercial and financial services sector to do about gambling. So this episode of the podcast asks, what should we really expect those people and firms who provide us with current accounts, loans or other financial products to be doing for customers dealing with a full-blown gambling addiction? Can we really expect them to do anything for customers at all? After all, some argue that this isn't the bank or lender's fault, but the fault of the individual. Or at the other end of the scale, could we not only perhaps actively expect a response when a full-blown problem exists, um, but for our financial services providers to also look out for us, watch our transactions, and possibly even identify and prevent this happening in the very early stages. As with all the issues in our podcast, this is a, a live debate within the financial services sector and beyond, with discussion among firms about gambling blocks on customer accounts, the Gambling Commission mooting a, a total ban on the use of credit cards for gambling, and a growing sense that this is a public health issue as well as a financial services issue, and everyone can play a part in this. So to help us explore this today, I'm really delighted to have with us uh, Dr. Henrietta Bowden-Jones, who's the director and founder of the clinic. Hi, Henrietta. Lovely thanks for coming. To be here. Lovely to be here. And thanks very much for putting us up in a room. Um, you'll be able to see some of the photos of this conversation uh, online when the podcast is launched. We've got Owen Bailey, who's a speaker, campaigner, and has lived with a gambling addiction since his, his 20s. Owen, welcome. Hello. And we've got Natalie Ledwood and Stuart McFadden from Monzo. Now, Monzo are the very popular bank on a smartphone. I'm sure there's a lot more to the description we can add later on. Uh, and Natalie is a vulnerable customer specialist at Monzo, and Stuart is head of financial difficulties. So thanks ever so much. So we're going to start with the experience of gambling addiction, uh, both from the perspective of, of Owen, who's lived through this himself, and then from Henrietta. we hear a bit more about her work with hundreds, if not thousands of people who are living with a gambling addiction have come to the clinic for help and assistance. So let's hear first from Owen about his experience. I started gambling when I was really young on fruit machines and it wasn't until I was 18 that my gambling really took off when I started playing roulette. Um, yeah, I had a really big win when I was 18, not too long after I discovered roulette. And as much as this was a great experience, it really did me a lot of damage in the long term because I believe that if I could have that big win once, I can achieve it again, but it wasn't meant to be. Um, and I, I gambled more and more after this big win and I was left in a really bad situation. I left myself destitute, basically. Um, and yeah, it's, the, the experience was, was bad, but... Um, it made me realise, the, the whole experience of this big win and losing all that money forced me 
to realise that actually I do have a, gum, have a gambling problem and I need to do something about it and so I decided to seek help. The problem was there was not enough help available to me in the local area. It wasn't until I developed an alcohol problem where I was then able to seek face-to-face -face help. But the real turning point for me was when I started to access the help from the National Problem Gambling Clinic, where I was able to receive very tailored, very bespoke, specific help to help me address my gambling problem. So Owen, we've just heard in the recorded piece with you about how gambling's affected your life, and uh, money obviously plays a big part in gambling, both access to money to gamble and also the amounts lost and sometimes won. Can you tell us how gambling's affected you in, in financial and personal terms? Well, that's a big question. Um, having had a gambling problem for all of my adult life and most of my teenage years, um, there's not one part of my life that hasn't been affected by my gambling. Um, and the effects of my gambling has been absolutely devastating to the point of almost complete destruction. Um, my mental health has suffered massively. You know, I've experienced a lot of depression, um, feeling very, very low. Gambling and having to face up to the consequence of gambling has really affected my confidence and the way I feel about myself. Relationships, because sadly, you know, having a gambling problem, gambling becomes, has had become my priority. And so therefore I neglect my relationships, those relationships and friendships that are really important to me, with, particularly around my family and, and close friends. And obviously, you know, there's, with, with neglect, you know, relationships do, Get do break down. Mm. I've lost um, a lot of jobs as a consequence of my gambling. Um, I'm not dealing with the consequences of the losses, um, which have happened very often. I often find, find it difficult to cope at work, and therefore my relationships with colleagues in work break down, and I become absent because I'm just very feel very very down and depressed. Yeah. Um, Interests and hobbies. I recall from when I was very young, you know, my only interest was gambling. I didn't have any other interest at all. And so gambling just became what I did in my life. It's all encompassing. Absolutely. And it, it, it's affected you financially as well, particularly. Of course, absolutely. Um, so where I'm today in, in my current circumstances, my current situation is that. Um, I'm very poor as a consequence of all my gambling. I have no assets, I have no savings, I'm in a lot of debt, and the only money that I get to live on is money I earn. Um, and that is a consequence of, of all, all the gambling that has happened in, mm. in my life. Uh, so, so, so gambling has been extremely devastating to, to my financial situation. So, Etta, from a, from a clinician's perspective, firstly, kind of what is gambling addiction? We've heard about the human side there, the financial side. From a clinical perspective, how, how would we define and understand gambling addiction? From a clinical perspective, I think the best way to approach this is to uh, think about a loss of control. A loss of control over behaviours that you have learned are really toxic, really negative for your well-being and the well-being of others around you. And what Owen was talking about here, about the impact on family, on relationships, we're focusing on finances here today. And I think one of the ways in which these relationships do break down is that our patients ask to borrow money when they run out of their own money. 
Furthermore, when they are refused for their own good, um, sometimes things get very tricky and arguments follow. Um, people get upset, children get scared. Sometimes people turn towards their employers for money and after they've asked for advances and they start behaving erratically because maybe that money isn't coming, um, several of our patients have actually committed illegal acts. And that's really, I really want to stress this, it is so against the nature of problem gamblers and yet it is so part of the illness. So gambling leads people to behave in a way that they really don't want to be and behave in. And I think that's where the loss of control comes. One of the ways in which we can really help with the treatment is to nurture behaviours and activities that are emotionally nurturing. And to do that, people need to be free of the constant, as Owens was referring to, that constant preoccupation with gambling. And this is really where the financial sector can help, because if you know you can't access funds, if you know you can't use funds to gamble, you have a clarity of thought that you don't have if you are constantly preoccupied with accessing the money. And what help, tell us a bit more about the clinic here and kind of what help you give on the financial side. We'll come to the banks a bit later mm -hmm. on, but what, what help do you give? The National Problem Gambling Clinic uh, uh, was founded by me just over 10 years ago. Um, it has treated thousands and thousands of people. It is a national clinic and receives referrals from all over the country. Um, and uh, initially, in the first probably seven years, I was insistent on having uh, financial help within the clinic and I was lucky enough to be giving a talk at the Gambling Commission one day when someone in the audience pointed out that there was a free pot of money for people with mental health issues uh, dedicated to receiving help. So I applied for that funding and I received it. So for many, many years all our gamblers here would get tailored, bespoke and group interventions for their uh, financial issues. About three years ago that ended and we now work in conjunction with uh, people's local branches in order to give them financial support. Personally, I would like to go back to the old way of working and having people in-house. And now that we are in this new Earl's Court building with far more rooms, I think that is going to be possible again and I really welcome it. And between two you and, and Annette, it's... Um what help, we've heard about some of the help you give to people here at the, at the clinic and some of the things that you, you've done in, in the past maybe to address this. How is that mirrored by the financial services sector? Are they, are they tuned into this issue around gambling? I mean, where, where are we now? I certainly think in my opinion, having had debts and try, having had to try and deal with my debts, I do get a sense that there is a growing acknowledgement of gambling being um, a problem. Um, and I think in my experience of contacting my creditors, you know, it seem, does seem that creditors are more receptive to gambling and do consider that as part of the ongoing communications. So, so in my experience, they are more, more helpful today than perhaps they have done historically, but I still feel there is a long way to go. Yeah, Etta, here's a couple of your take. Uh, yes, I would echo uh, what Owen has said. I think there is a 
growing awareness, partly driven by media with all the um, stories about people um, spending more than they should, often not their own money. Uh, now, I think there is a lot that can be done, and as yet has not been done, at least not on a wide scale. Uh, what I'd like to uh, see are uh, cards that can be used um, from any bank, not just some bank, um, where people can say, look, I do tend to spend too much on gambling, I'd like to stop completely, so don't let me ever use this card for anything to do with gambling. Full stop, no questions asked, and that's that. Now, it's my understanding from many of my patients that um, this has not been possible for them, uh, even after discussions have been had by the family with the banks. So, possibly, uh, uh, facilitating those conversations, uh, bringing up the subject with every person coming through. Is there anything that you really don't want to spend your money on? Lovely. So kind of uh, listening very carefully to that, we have uh, Natalie and uh, Stuart from Monzo. Now, Monzo are a relatively, uh, relatively new entrant to the financial services marketplace, in, uh, in, but although founded in 2015, already gaining a, a very strong uh, reputation, not only for technological innovation, but also attacking what financial services sometimes call the, the vulnerability agenda, helping customers in difficult circumstances who might be facing um, detriment. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Stuart, it is an easy one for you. Kind of, yeah. In general terms, kind of a, what, what does vulnerability mean to Monzo? And, and how can a bank like yourself really help customers like Owen or others who might have a gambling problem? Okay, so I suppose to, to Monzo, vulnerability is anything that makes it difficult for somebody to manage their finances or anything that makes their relationship with Monzo as their bank uh, more difficult to manage. So it could be things like accessibility, it can be addiction, it can be anything. So when we, I mean, do you want me to talk about the context of like mm -hmm. Monzo being gambling? So like um, when we um, started, we set up this function very early on, like I was, I think I was number 47 to join. So I feel like it's it's very lucky to embed this kind of culture within somewhere like Monzo because first of all like the mission is like to make money work for everybody and this is part of that, it includes everybody. Um, so we wanted to start building out some things that um, could help customers uh, in vulnerable situations and there's a number of things in how like when, when we're thinking about what we can do obviously there's things like training of staff, making sure people know where to refer people to mm. for certain situations but when it comes to things that we could actually do that are a little bit different um, we try to do the things that are going to have the most impact, uh, things that are like easiest to implement, and ideally something that's kind of useful for as many people as possible. Um, and in the early days we, we weren't lending, um, and the thing that kept popping up again and again and again is people, it's really easy as a bank to see what is going on obviously in someone's account, and if somebody is showing signs of problem gambling, like it's really easy to see that. Um, and it was really common, and we had lots of customers asking us for mm -hmm. us to block gambling, tran uh, gambling transactions on the account. So, uh, and so that became like obviously something we, we really wanted to work on quite soon because it was the most impactful thing that we could see. Um, so yeah, my team eventually, like, eventually will start building out various different things for, um, for vulnerable customers and we see our role is just to make sure we do the most impactful ones first. So Natalie, you've been working on this uh, gambling project. Can you just tell us exactly what it is and kind of maybe kind of how effective or how well we know it's, it's working? Yes, <laughs> I can. So um, when I joined the team um, in March, this was the first project I worked on and um, it 
basically came, as Stuart said, from this this huge, as I saw it, huge demand from our customers um, for this particular feature, a block for gambling transactions. Um, so just to kind of give you a bit of context how, how it works, Monzo um, and any bank can see what you're spending your money on. So if you go into Asda or Tesco and you spend some money, it will be tagged as groceries. Um, and it's basically called an MCC, Merchant, Ma- Merchant Category Code. So we use our app to kind of categorize your spending. Um, and that's been a feature from really early on. So you can see how much you're spending on your groceries and how much you're spending on entertainment. Um, and we use that technology, that same technology to block gambling transactions. So there's a series of codes, MCC, Merchant Category Codes, uh, that relate to gambling, um, both online and you know, in store. Um, and we've built a block that basically um, excludes those from your spending. So, so this is something on, on, on the phone, on the app, you have to activate? How does it work? Yeah, so um, you, you can either chat to customer support or you can go into the settings of the Monzo app itself and it's a simple switch to turn on. It's not as easy to turn off. Ah, um, okay, tell, yeah. us a bit, tell, tell us a bit more about that. <laughs> so, um, in order to you know, set this up correctly, we obviously got advice from various charities um, on how to implement what we call positive friction. Um, in Monzo, so we wanted um, this friction to kind of stop people turning it off as easy as you know a switch. So there's two parts to switching the gambling block off. Um, there's a 48 hour cooldown period. So if you want the gambling block switched off, you would have to reach out to customer support first, request that it's switched off, and then you'd have to wait 48 hours. Um, that customer support interaction gives us the opportunity to check everything's okay basically um, and then if they still want to go ahead we'll turn it off but it takes 48 hours. Okay um, you've been doing a little bit of research about sometimes we hear about these ideas and that's one of the things in financial services that comes up you get a good trail on what people are planning to do but you've actually done it and for once you've done an evaluation or a piece of research to see how it's being we used. Have. Yes, so we um, conducted a little bit of data analysis and a survey um, because we saw that as soon as we launched this feature, the numbers went straight up, lots of people were turning it on, so we kind of wanted to gauge how useful it is to people. We want to make improvements on it, we know that there's still more that we can do, so we wanted to find out exactly how it's working for people. so we conducted this survey, we asked about 5,000 people. Um, was that the total number of people who turned it on or was there a larger number? There is a larger number. So at the moment there's about 25,000 people that have the gambling block switched on. Out of how many customers? A million. Okay. Wow. Yeah, so there's a huge amount of people that have switched the gambling block on. Mm-hmm. We were seeing these numbers going up <laughs> um, every week, week on week. We get lots of people turning it on. So we, we sent out this sort of questionnaire to 5,000 customers who have enabled the block um, and asked them a series of questions on it. Um, What was interesting was 15% of people answered um, why they turned it on because they're concerned with the gambling. So that makes sense to us, that that was the amount that we expected to come back. Um, The rest of the the customers have turned it on for various other reasons. So about 3,500 people because of gambling issues. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then from, from there, of those, that group of customers, so the, the customers that answered, I'm concerned with the gambling, we've picked up on quite a lot of interesting, um, sort of, I guess, 
statistics on, on their behaviour and um, one of the things that we found interesting was the friction that we've just been talking about. Um, when we asked the whole sample of the survey um, whether it influenced them or not to have this friction in place, the 48 hours and the chat with customer service, um, people were quite indifferent when it was taken as the whole picture. But of the people who said they were concerned with the gambling, it really matters. So to those people, it influences them a lot that they have to wait 48 hours. Mm. So that the friction that we've designed sounds like it's working for the, the people it's designed for, which is great. Um, but one of the, the most interesting things we think is that we've identified about half of those customers aren't getting support from anywhere. So 50% of the customers that are concerned with the gambling, that have switched the gambling lock off, are getting no help. So that's a huge opportunity for us to maybe signpost them at this, that point. This is really interesting. So Etta et, et and Owen, what, what, what do you make of this? Uh, love hearing all the things you're saying and well done for this great initiative, which will help an enormous amount of people. Um, there are two things that come to mind. The first one is the famous wave, the cravings wave. So you need to surf the wave before it naturally starts coming down. And so what you're doing with this 48-hour period is that you're allowing for that cooling down period to occur. And most people after that will be ready not to go back to that activity. So that's fantastic. And it has to be that kind of time in order to properly allow people to have come through it. Um, so I, I think that's really good. The other point I'd like to pick up on is you're, you're noticing how few people are uh, interacting with help. What we do know is that there are about just under half a million problem gamblers in this country. And we know that in any one year there are roughly 8,000 people in treatment. So that makes it a lot of other people who are out there not getting treatment, not having what we call stimulus control which is, by the way, all about making it very hard for you to practice what is bad for you. What's quite interesting listening to that is um, one of the survey questions we asked the general population was what could we do to improve the gambling block? Um, and we had an assumption about, we'll talk about that a bit later, we had an assumption about what people would want to improve it. Um, and it turned out that actually people seem to want to deal with it themselves without telling other people because we were asking like one of the things we thought people were going to ask for was a third party kind of thing because we thought like it'd be better if rather than chatting to a stranger on customer support to turn the block off they had to I don't know send a text message to a trusted friend who could then agree to turn it off and that friend would know more about the situation and be able to make a better decision but actually when we last asked the general population uh, so this is all the people that weren't didn't actually identify as problem gamblers that was something that people really wanted um, a trusted friend to turn him off but when it came to the sample of the survey of people that identified as problem gamblers um, they didn't actually want a third party they would rather have just done some um, done some other things yeah. and don't forget that a lot of people we see 
at the extreme end of the spectrum don't have a trusted other because they've been totally alone for some time. They do not have anyone who could, even if they wanted to manage their finances. So a lot of people who've said no may, may fall into that category. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, and um, I'm a Monzo member, I have a Monzo account, I've yet to utilise it, um, but I'm really liking the, the fact that it has a gambling block feature, and I can just imagine that if a person, assuming the person who gambles, and that person um, is concerned about their gambling, it's fantastic, I think, that they have that ability to put a block on gamb any gambling transactions. I think in terms of denying or limiting access to opportunities to gamble. I think that's a really, really helpful feature. Also, I think, um, you know, the, the window, the, the two-day two window, if a, gamble, if a person who gambles has gambled, um, and I think, you know, following on from what Etta says, you know, that two-day window is incredibly valuable in terms of getting into a mind state of being able to make a more rational decision around whether or not to gamble. Because um, I, I know from my own experience, in the heat of it, if I've lost a thousand pounds or however much, you know, that desire to go and chase my money is, is extremely intense. I'm not able to make decisions as well. I'm very impulsive. And, and so, so, yeah. That's good. Do you think the two days is enough? Henrietta, you seem to Im imply that maybe something a bit, a bit more permanent or uh, longer might be needed. I'm very interested to tell you what, what you make, make of that. And, and, and Owen, is it? We, are you aware of the, um, the, the block feature before we, we came here today? I just wonder why you hadn't turned it on. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I was aware and I have turned it on. Um, yes, so absolutely, if the feature can be extended, fantastic. I think it will prove a really valuable resource for those who are serious about trying to address their gambling. Is two days long enough, Henrietta? Well, it depends what we're discussing. If we're talking about the equivalent of self-exclusion, but a bank-based model, uh, then no, anyone who is a pathological gambler should never be allowed to gamble on their cards ever again on anything to do, uh, or any platform gambling linked. So, no, it's not. However, we are t there are two million people who are at risk of becoming pathological gamblers and we need to look at numbers as well. So from a kind of treatment perspective, all our patients are very clear about needing to self-exclude from bookmakers, online, anything that is a gambling platform for them is no longer available to them by the time they've done treatment with us because they have removed the opportunity. It would make it a very strong model to also allow them to have a card that will never allow them to gamble. I would be totally in favour of that. What I'm clear about is that for the two million people who are at risk, this may not be a natural step and indeed may be acting against somehow uh, what we're trying to do. It is easier for these people potentially to be prevented from entering the harmful phase because actually by the time they um, have waited 48 hours they won't gamble anyway. Um, it, it's a difficult decision and I ha since I have spent my life with problem gamblers I would do everything to block anyone from ever gambling on anything so I don't have a very um, 
objective perspective mm. on the harm prevention of the bigger population. Uh, I know some people say to me that it would become a nanny state, but what I would say is it's your decision in the first place whether to turn it on, and if you're turning it on, you are definitely responding to some uh, concern mm. that you or your relatives are expressing. So is it long enough? No. But is it a good measure? Yes. Okay, Natalie and Stuart, just to push you a little bit on this and explore some of the findings a bit more, because I think this is really fascinating. Where, where did the, the two days come from? Because there's a balance here, isn't there, between commercial realism and what we think might work in terms of an intervention, and between them is a gap, which is kind of evidence. You've presented some of the evidence. I just wonder where the two days, two days came from. Yeah, so um, we, when we were originally researching and discussing it with charities, we kind of took some advice on the 48 hours that that would potentially be a good amount of time. We were, we were worried at first, I think, about the response, and you mentioned the nanny, nanny state thing and withholding people's money, and although this is a choice for people to turn the gambling block on, um, at the time we didn't really know what measures we should put in, and, and that's where we took the advice. So 48 hours came from, from advice that we got from charities and a general consensus around what we thought would be appropriate. 24 hours not long enough, 48 hours sounds like a good a good amount of time. And your customers are saying that they, they think the 15% who are identified as um, having a gambling issue think that's a good a good period of time. So you're, you're getting some positive feedback from them. Yeah, so we, we well, the, the feedback was positive about the friction in terms of it is influencing them to not switch it mm. off. However, a lot of people actually came back. I've got um, some sort of interesting findings about the the friction that we're talking about in 48 hours, and it just echoes what Etta just said. It isn't long enough. 48 hours. 43% of people said they'd rather wait longer. Make me wait longer. Um, some people um, also wanted a permanent option. Uh, one person suggested, which we thought was a really nice idea, to have this control, like a sliding control of of how long um, the friction would be. So that's something that we may consider in the future is offering the choice to people. So at the point where they switch it on, how long do you want us to make you wait? So 48 hours to permanent. That's very interesting indeed. Okay. And you, there, you people with, um, you know, uh, was it imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, I think, something <laughs> like that. So lots of people are now introducing these controls and switches into their into their products, but not everybody's got that positive friction in there. It's um, is that a misunderstanding, or on on the part of financial services, perhaps, or is there not the appetite, as we said, to be seen as that nanny state kind of interventionist? I mean, I think when it comes when it comes to Monzo, we tend to do things what we say iteratively. So we try something, and don't get the final version out. Just get something out there and see how people respond. Uh, use the data that we get um, and ask customers um, whether they like it or not and then we'll decide whether to improve, which is exactly what we're doing with, with the gambling block. So I think maybe other organisations are doing the same thing. Um, we've definitely, you know, ours is definitely isn't perfect. Like we've realised that when people turn it back off, off again, like there should be something that then refers them straight to sources of advice automatically. Instead, we didn't anticipate that, so we now have to make sure customer support go and act proactively have those conversations. So I think Maybe it's just people just, just trying things and haven't got quite got to the final version, but 
uh, I mean, the feedback we got from the charities and everything when we were doing our planning uh, was um, you need some friction. <laughs> if people could just turn it straight back off, uh, especially if it's in the, I mean, if you have to call up your bank and ask them to, that's still quite a bit of friction. But if you can just turn it off in the settings, um, it's probably not going to serve the purpose. You so want we're to seeing quite an interesting model here. So on the other side of the coin of friction, you've got the, um, the signposting and referral. I just wonder what the thoughts are, kind of better and kind of Nathan Stewart is when we identify a problem and then we refer to someone like that's a problem gambling clinic. Um, are the resources there to deal with this? We're talking about mm-hmm. huge commercial organisations starting to refer large volumes, perhaps, of people to yeah. organisations. Yeah. Uh, well, just before we go on to that point, I'd like to just discuss for a moment the uh, shared characteristic of impulsivity that is shared by pathological gamblers across not just the country but the world. So the reason why it works to wait, to, in, to self-impose the wait through these apps is that it is harder for problem gamblers to um, work it out on their own that actually uh, they might want to question this drive to do, to place the bet or indeed to stay away from the uh, safety of the controls on your on your app so so i really welcome it very much because in a way it's an extra inhibition that helps people to be more let's say normalized in relation to much of the population who is able to decide you know no i will not buy this expensive piece of clothing unless i really want it all week or all month and then i will invest in it so this is a feature that lacks so i think that's an important point um, going back to demand um well there is a strong drive across the country to try and uh, double triple quadruple numbers in treatment it is needed and I think it's possible. And how do we do it? We do it exactly in this way. We go and seek people out in places that are not clinics, where their behaviours have driven them to interact with other organisations. And this is a perfect example, probably the prime example. So classic public health intervention yeah. tactics. Yeah. But it is the sector kind of geared up to receive it, if a, if, a, if a Monzo, a Lloyds, a Barclays, kind of um, whoever, whoever it is, mm. starts to refer people in large volumes, how, how would a clinic like yourself um, deal with this? Once need is identified, uh, and I think there is a need out there, it's just finding the people uh, to come forward and willing to come forward for treatment, um, then our hub and spoke model would be implemented. So we have the hub here, we have spokes that use our protocols, our governance, our risk measures, and our, um, all, all the treatment protocols uh, in order to deliver the same quality of care. And that would be easily achievable, I think. Okay, so it sounds like a partnership in the off, offing there between Monzo and the, and, and, and the clinic. One of the things that struck me, just before we, we kind of move on to some broader questions, is, um, is around the you mentioned the 15% of people, but that means there's 85% of people, if I can do some very crude maths, <laughs> who've turned it on who perhaps don't have a gambling problem, maybe not even at risk. Why are they turning on a, a gambling block feature? So the answer that we've got is two answers. The first one is because I don't gamble, so I thought I might as well. Um, and then the second one is 
it's to do with security basically they see it as an extra security measure mm-hmm. they don't gamble and they don't want anyone else to gamble on their account um, not being people they know I assume that's people they don't know so security feature um, yeah have you ever considered having it on in the first place and people having to opt out of this we haven't no um, I think I mean, my cons- my immediate concern around that is like, it's not an obvious thing that your bank would do, so people wouldn't expect it. Yeah. Um, and there's kind of two things. There's, there's the, obviously the thing around seem, seeming a bit too controlling, the whole nanny state mm-hmm. thing, but also as a bank, like you are liable potentially if people want to use mm-hmm. their money and, mm-hmm. and they can't use it in the way it's expected. So say, for example, someone went, someone like had a tip on a horse and they went to go put it on and then the card wouldn't work or they wouldn't with, couldn't withdraw any money. Yes. And quite rightly, they might not be aware that there was a block. Then well, absolutely. It's just an interesting question yeah. to hear your thoughts Yeah. On. Well, we'll come on a, a little bit later to the issue of kind of how you balance people telling you that they have a problem as to kind of identifying that proactively. But let's, let's open it up a little bit more. We've kind of established that kind of a financial services are, are taking steps. We've heard about kind of the Monzo um, project. We have a bit more about how that develops, but it does raise some quite thorny considerations for for the wider discussion. So, sure, I'm going to put you slightly on the spot. So, uh, I'm going to ask you. You previously worked at the Financial Conduct Authority. I did. Uh, yes. So, kind of as well as being at Monzo, you've seen this whole discussion emerge from multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. So, just to start our conversation off, I mean, where do you think the balance lies between the responsibility of financial services to take action? and uh, individuals to take that responsibility, that ownership of the problem themselves. What what can we really expect in terms of that balance? There's definitely a balance. Um, And it's really difficult for the FCA. When you work in financial services, not not in one day, but there is a lot of um, complaining around how the rules aren't prescriptive enough or they're quite vague. Um, But when you work at the FCA, you realise why they have to be. Because if you say this is what you're supposed to do, then everyone just does the minimum standard of what they're supposed to do. Which is why I think um, all the all the regulation around vulnerability is relatively like it, relatively vague, but then they have got an occasional paper that is on vulnerability, which is amazing. Like I had to build our vulnerable customer function from scratch, and that was almost like a the perfect guide to it. Um, so yeah, I think I think there is a there, there is a big responsibility on bank with responsibility on banks, and um, the fact that it's not prescriptive enough causes problems um, because I think what the what the FCA might be concerned about is that if there were, if so, if it was too prescriptive um, some organisation just might not be able to implement things that others can mm. like it's easier for us as a smaller organisation with mostly with everything through an app to implement things than it is for say like Lloyd's or someone to implement something like that um, so I think though that financial services should bear a lot of responsibility when they ought to have known that there is a problem when it comes to vulnerability. Are customers ultimately responsible? You know, it's yeah. um, rather than the person working in the bank or even the vulnerability yeah. specialist. I mean, isn't it, isn't it the responsibility of the customer? It's really hard. It's like a case by case basis. I'd say, like, um, say for example, if we had someone that came through and they told us that they had a problem with gambling and our customer support agent just didn't pay any attention to it and ignored it, and then that person went and took out, and I don't know, if it's like, you know, I struggle with gambling, I've gone to loads of debt before, please don't lend to me, and then we just lend to them anyway. Like, it's quite obvious that we bear some responsibility there. Whereas if it's just somebody just takes out an overdraft, doesn't ever speak to us, and then they, they use most of it on gambling, then it'd be, 
it'd be pretty harsh to say that we'd be liable in those situations. Okay. I think we just need to provide tools to, to let people help themselves. Before we hear a little bit more about self-disclosure and some of the work you did at Monta, which I think is a really interesting kind of point. I mean, it's kind of, what, what, you know, from someone who's been there, well, what, do we, what can we really expect of banks? I mean, these got shareholders, they're listed on the FTSE, you know, yeah. they're, they're not councillors or NHS helplines. I mean, what can you really expect of them? It's a, it's a really interesting question. I know from personal experience that, you know, whenever I've had a really bad gambling episode, you know, I'm, I feel incredibly distressed and very desperate. I am seeking out ways I can get more money to survive or to pay off for the people or to pay off friends or, or, or the debts. And so I'm going to approach anyone and, every, and everything in order to obtain money. And I'm going to approach banks, you know, for, for, for an extra credit card or, or an overdraft or something like that, through sheer desperation. Um, it's, it's, it's a really difficult question. Um, and I think I, I, it's no, there's no real clear answer. It's just, <clears throat> I think, I, in my experience, I do recall spending maxing out a credit card once and still receiving um, invitations to apply for more credit cards. Now, I'm thinking, from my perspective, you know, clearly there will be some record of gambling spend on the credit card of maxed out. Is there any way that the, the providers of those invitations for me to obtain more credit, is there anything visible that shows them that actually I've used this credit card to spend uh, money on gambling transactions? I don't know. I don't know enough about the financial sector. But in terms of... In terms of in terms of the, um, uh, the financial sector to be offered more help, I think there's obviously huge room for more understanding and awareness and training. And uh, I think from my experience as well, contacting my creditors, it's been really valuable to try and work out some breathing space to be able mm -hmm. to work on my recovery. And in order to get to a position where I can then face dealing with my gambling debt. Let's put this another way. Would you, let's put Monzo aside because we're in the room and we're putting Monzo aside. Would you tell your bank before um, you got into difficulty that you had uh, maybe an issue with gambling? Would you disclose that to them? Would you trust me over this concern about where our data goes and how it impacts us? I mean, sadly, no. I, I'd only, in my experience, I have only been open and honest about my gambling when I've reached an incredibly tight and very difficult spot where I am backed into a corner, I've backed myself into a very tight corner and I've exhausted all options and I'm trapped almost. Um, and whilst there's an opportunity to obtain credit, I'm very vulnerable, I'm very likely to take very dangerous risks and make very bad, very unhelpful decisions. Um, it's, yeah, it's not a nice place to be. Is, is, this, is this a kind of a flaw for those who wait for disclosure then, for the clients that you work with? Um, I, I, I think that having a way of talking about the thing that no one talks about, the gambler because he is embarrassed or scared to approach the subject, the banks because it suits them not to so that people keep on spending money, Having a way of communicating uh, the fact that transactions have occurred uh, uh, and they are harmful transactions because they've led to overdrafts and financial problems is important. Now, how that happens 
Uh, I'm not so sure, but for example, um, there could be a way of looking, and in fact, I think that is the best way forward. You could look at percentage of income, and if you realize, and you, you guys you will know more about this, but it, certainly you can decide on a percentage of income that becomes unnatural and uh, unpleasant to the person if it becomes, if, if the gambling goes over. Um, and, and indeed, if, you know, you could apply that to alcohol. If you spend a, you know, a significant percent of your, or your income in a pub, mm-hmm. you may indeed so, have so a what big is it, what, is this, what is this number? Well, um, the number is, um, it, it's a difficult thing to tell you about because um, research has been done and uh, different sums have come up. So rather than confuse people by mentioning it on a podcast, although I do have a clear number in my head, I, I think it would be better to look at the latest evidence-based research to decide what that number is. But nevertheless, whatever that number is, it tends to work well, uh, because what we can't say is, uh, well, you've spent £500 this month, you have a problem. Why? Because everyone's income differs. So this is something that we no longer do, although some clinics historically have recorded amounts spent and if the amount seemed high enough they would deem this to be more or less severe. Whereas actually you need to look at it in relation to the total income uh, because that's how you're going to understand the impact on accommodation, on being able to provide food for your kids or being able to pay your mortgage. Uh, So I think that every single bank is able already today to determine what expenditure is on gambling products and what percentage it is in relation to income. So that would be an easy thing to do. Well, we won't push you on that magic number, but maybe we, will, we can get that on the, um, the web page where people can find out more details after this podcast is finished. We've got, we've got two challenges there then for the um, for, uh, banks and financial services sector. One is around um, the disclosure and how we encourage people to disclose a situation before it becomes a crisis, as you were saying, kind of. The other is the, the, the identification through transaction data. If there are tines on the fork, I love the word tines, if there are tines on the fork, so you're looking at self-disclosure at the moment, tell us a bit about that, Natalie, and maybe Stuart, you can say something about where this might go in terms of identification. Sure. So, um, obviously, identifying vulnerability is one of the hardest parts about our job in the vulnerable customer team, and you can look at it two ways. You can look at it through transactional triggers or conversational triggers, um, but there's there's this sort of concept of self-disclosure being quite a powerful one because it's you know hopefully at a point of clarity if you're going to self-disclose to your bank and tell them about your circumstances it might be a preventative measure and it will prevent difficult conversations happening in the future so that's what we've been looking at recently and we've, we've just today actually launched a tool called share with us and it is basically an opportunity for people to share anything that they want to about their circumstances that might affect the way that they manage the finances. Um, anything? Anything, anything. We, we did examples. It's good job that I'm not a customer. You'd be yeah. hearing about my dodgy handshake. Yeah, so it's open to anything, anything that might affect that, um, whether that be mental health, accessibility, any, anything about how you interact with us as Monzo, as your bank. Um, Come on though, we've all had the experience of um, kind of uh, sharing something that disappears into a black hole. 
Yes. Yes. I mean, is this, is this just a, a, a bucket full of information <laughs> about your customers? What, what do you, what no. do, you do this? <laughs> so, so at the moment, before this tool was released, if somebody disclosed something, it would usually be in a conversation with customer support. If it was anything that might indicate vulnerability, that would get escalated to us in our team. And then from there, we might maybe signpost to help or we'd, you know, we'd intervene in some way. Um, this is a tool that comes straight to us in the vulnerable customer team, so it skips that step of having a conversation with customer support. Um, and it basically is an opportunity for us to review um, the circumstances that a customer is experiencing and maybe offer help. And if we can't offer help at this moment in time, so if we you know, we don't have a feature that might help, like it's not about gambling, we don't have a gambling block to offer, mm-hmm. then that might inform the features of the future. So it's a, a two-part thing. So where, where is, is this um, part of um, onboarding, getting a new customer, or is it um, in my account settings? It's, kind it's of... actually in help. So yeah. you would go to the help section of our app, and you can find it in two places. So you can just search share with us, or you can go to the my account section, and there's a... There's a uh, an option there for you to disclose anything that you'd. I can see our producer Manish Parikh is uh, probably opening his monster You're lap as we speak. Right now. Yeah. Please, please help me. I'm trapped in a podcast. <laughs> it's kind of a, this is really okay. This is really interesting, and I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm a sociologist. It's interesting because I think it starts to normalise in many respects. Although there's barriers to disclosure, begins to normalise and destigmatise some of this information being shared in the same way that you might share a mobile phone number. You might share you're going away on holiday, so please don't block my credit card. Am I being idealistic here? If you if, with Monzo, would this kind of opening up of share your experience? Own, would that would that help overcome some of your worries? Uh, possibly, possibly. I think so. I think it would all depend upon where that person is who has a gambling problem, where they are at in the journey. Mm-hmm. If I am engaging with the, the uh, it is, uh, doctor, um, sorry. If I'm engaging with the National Problem Gambling Clinic and I'm aware that, you know, I have a gambling problem, it's something I want to kind of address, perhaps, and I've become aware that there's going to be some value in communicating with Monzo. And knowing that if I do communicate with Monzo, that they could perhaps be of some help to me, then perhaps it might be something that I would want to utilise in order to try and prevent things from escalating and getting uh, my situation getting in, into any further difficulty. Okay, so we've heard about disclosure. This is really, really exciting, I, I think. And it'd be something you evaluate as well in the same way as the ongoing evaluation of the gambling book. What then, Stuart, about identification? Because it's, you know, you said at the, at the start, I've heard other people say this, you know, this isn't um, a hidden addiction when it comes to kind of banking, if you've got access to income and expenditure data. So there's a there's an audit trail, there's data there. Kind of surely it's surely it's as simple as just um, sending a message to somebody saying, hey, um, you've 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 got a problem. Can we help? Is it that simple? <laughs> I wish it was, but no. Um, so it, interesting, actually, uh, the point uh, that Owen just made about um, depending at, at what point someone is at in their journey, maybe maybe how responsive they are, what they might share with you. And we're actually um, setting up a relationship with the Behavioural Insights team and the Money Advice Service, um, who are trying to like basically help people improve the way they manage their money by using behaviourally informed ideas. And one of those ideas is timely interventions. Um, and I think this is where data can become very, very useful. 
and, and banks have amazing uh, things behind the scenes regarding predicting like financial crime or fraud and things like that. Things that are going to lose them loads of money and they'll get in lots of trouble with the regulators mm. for if they don't do it properly. Um, and yes, there could be certainly be things like I mean it could be it could work in lo- loads of areas and like debt is one where my team my team initially is kind of set up to try and help people deal with their financial difficulties and like try and help prevent people getting to financial difficulties and these are the kind of ideas that are um, that are going around we're not we're not there yet of course um, we will be um, in the next year or so um, but one of the things you could do for example is yeah look at percentage of income that's spent on gambling when it we can speak to experts as we always do um, because we we don't claim to be experts and decide what's a sensible number and then think of like a timely point to intervene so it could be that someone has just used all the money in their account and they've got to that point where they're probably like not feeling great about losing all that and they might be more receptive to a bank that then comes in and says hey like we, the way we've, we've done this in conversations where when we think it might offend the customer we're willing to take a little bit of a risk but we think it's a timely point where we say hey it's our standard procedure to refer people to this when this has happened or somebody's mentioned gambling or whatever or someone's got x percentage of their spending on gambling and i can see something that we're not doing this by the way yeah. it's not we might do this but yeah. <laughs> we might we probably will be doing this um, where we think of like sensible points to intervene and yeah. a sensible intervention that it would never be like we're now blocking gambling on the account be more like hey maybe you want to think about this or putting on the block so this is, this is standard so this is interesting etta and, and owen the kind of Often we think of intervention as a, as a point in time, like a cross-section, you know, perhaps making a referral, but the, the, the addiction is ongoing, and then there needs to be an ongoing understanding where the person is in relation to their recovery and treatment. So what kind of advice would we give to organisations such as Monzo to not only refer, but to support the customer as they come on? Yes, I think by the time we're talking about addiction, by the time we're saying someone has been diagnosed as a pathological gambler or has been behaving as one, then I think there is no really turning back in relation to behaviour in terms of finances. So their block should be on permanently and I think they should be told that if they unblock it, they're at a very, very high risk of misusing their finances again. Because we know that. We know that the... Uh, availability of funds triggers urges and cravings that lead to a relapse in gamblers. So that's the most important thing. But going back to the two million plus people who are at risk, whose behaviours can be maybe moderated and who do not want to stop completely, uh, some of them may wish to once they have the facts at hand, but many won't then I think being alerted to excessive behaviours at times when they might be... uh, Some people gamble more when they are depressed, some people gamble more when they're celebrating a lot, some people gamble more when they're taking drugs and alcohol. Coming through with a message like that, through the fog that can be created by these mental states, could be very helpful. So we're entering the last part of the conversation now. Um, we've heard a lot about the steps that have been taken, uh, the steps that are planned, both on the, the treatment side and also on financial services. So I'd just ask you like, for a concluding comment each on where you think you might go after this conversation. We hope the people who are, who are listening have been kind of inspired or enlightened to take further steps. So where do you think you might go, Monzo, kind of after this conversation in relation maybe to, to gambling or maybe addiction more generally? Because often people don't just have a gambling addiction. There'll be many other things that sit alongside that. So 
Where, where are things headed for you, for you guys at Monzo? Do you want to talk about the, uh, how we might change the feature? Or yeah, 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 we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, so we've already spoke about the friction and the, the length of time and the option of it being permanent. Um, we are also exploring, um, we know that there are ways around the gambling block. It's not the only method that you know people use to gamble and what we've seen is higher amounts of ATM withdrawals since people have activated the gambling block. So we probably would continue to look at other ways of supporting addiction around features like that. Um, and hopefully the, the share with us tool that we've, we've just released, that something might come of that as well. So depending on how we, you know, what, what answers we get through that, what reaction that gets, uh, we might, I guess, build on features to help mm -hmm. more generally. That's very interesting. So uh, I mean, gamblers will always find a way a way around these things. We're very resourceful, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, but I think, you know, as, as a tool, you know, with the, gam the gambling transaction block, I think that is something extra that hasn't been available before for those people who have had gambling problems, myself included. And so I would certainly be interested in seeing how things evolve and I'd certainly um, talk about Monzo and the gambling block app, um, facilities to, to, to people who I meet who have gambling problems. Um, so, so yeah, in terms of the tools available to, to help people um, limit access to gambling opportunities and to help them address their gambling behaviour, I think it's something very positive and it provides me with some hope that we are heading in, in the right direction. That's a key feature of recovery is hope and optimism. Absolutely. So, Etta, you know, where, where do you see things, where do you want things to go? There is a real optimism here on my part in relation to technology. I spend a lot of time talking about the harms that new forms of technology are, um, are producing in terms of problem gamblers being able to do more and more uh, harmful things to themselves online, for example, on their phones. But in this case, we could talk about technology also doing some good. And I really see a role for the kinds of apps that you've been talking about today becoming universally used by all our people. Can I add a point on that? Just of because I wanted to say it before it finished. It's like, this, is, this isn't necessarily like a tech thing. I think maybe because of our size and everything, we can do things like this a lot quicker than other people. Um, but if you think about children's accounts and everything that all banks do, mm -hmm. the reason children can't gamble on their accounts is because these merchant codes for gambling have been blocked. So it's entirely possible for all of the banks to do it. It's not, it's not a tech thing. I think it's something that we, out of all of, like when we talk about relative ease of doing things, this is one of the things that was easier to do. And I would love to see some of the bigger banks taking, taking that on board and um, implementing something like this. With the positive friction. With the positive friction, yes, definitely. So that's our litmus test, perhaps, for some of us. Yeah, I would support that fully. We are well aware that they can do it. Yeah. All of them can. Thank you. Well, well we've reached the end, sadly. Um, thanks, Etta, for having us here, also to the Central and Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, Owen Bailey, Matthew Ledwood, Fadden, very, very much. I think this is an issue we'll probably return to time and time again, and addiction more, more generally. Um, if you've been affected by or interested um, in the issues that have been raised in this podcast, uh, then there's a web address, which is uh, moneyadvicetrust.org slash podcast, where you can get more information on the programme 
uh, and the issues that we've covered. Uh, our next um, episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at the issue of suicide prevention and the role that the financial services sector can play in, in, in saving lives. You know, where do we start and where do we begin? But until then, uh, thank you and goodbye.